When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, Dark and Show. One of my first times voting, not the very first, but your look, was on the referendum on the Good Friday Agreement, which changed the wording of Articles of the Irish Constitution. It was one of the votes I was happiest with, because growing up in the 80s and early 90s, I'd watch the news and not believe we'd ever get that far. Thousands of voters felt the same. It was, it's been regarded as a huge accomplishment in international relations. It was because of this pride in in the Good Friday Agreement, that so many of us were horrified to see it undermined in Britain over the past few years. And today we're going to talk to the woman who's been in the firing line of these challenges. But first, Motherfucker was made possible by the generous support of listeners who sponsor the show on Patreon. Listeners like Morgan Miller, Karamila Mahagath, Morgan. Patreon supporters get a range of benefits as, as a token of our appreciation. This month we have a discount code for an Irish artist, Louise Nicolien. She's an Irish artist based in Belgium with some gorgeous work at selkiestudio.com. And if you could go there, have a look at it. And if you support us on Patreon, you can get a discount for some of her prints and other work. Patreon supporters also get access to bonus episodes, Discord server and more. And now, our show. Headstuff Podcast Network. Welcome to Mother Folklore, a podcast of words, Irish, Irish words, words from Ireland, and citizenship, belonging, all those good, sweet, sweet things. I'm Derek O'Shea. I'm Geraldine McAvoy. How are you getting on, Geraldine? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. It's good to have a connection, to, to feel like a normal person and podcast again, you know? Have you been following the news from this island? Yeah, uh, doom scrolling, I think is what they call it. <laughs> Just following it. <laughs> Trying to see where a big fail is, whether he's left his job yet. At present, he's no longer in the job. But who knows, you know? Who, who knows, knows what will happen by the time we, hit, we yeah. go on air. But uh, obviously, there's been one very interesting story that's been it's been dragging on for a while. But uh, there's been interesting developments in 2020 in a, in a year of um, poisonous hornets and rising temperatures and melting polar caps and pandemics. It's nice to get a little bit of arguably good news. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's good. Good to hear something positive coming out of all of the, the negative. Which is, of course, and this refers to um, our, our very special guest today. We're absolutely delighted to talk to a woman who didn't ask to be part of the news, but found her way in there and has excelled herself in the, in the process. Her name is, probably known to you all, Emma D'Souza. Hi, thank you so much for having me and delighted to be here. Thank you so much for joining us, Emma. We're absolutely honoured with your presence. You're very kind. Emma, you were just minding your own business, you know, just um, living in in Derry and with your husband uh, didn't didn't ask to be public figures and then the next thing you know you found yourselves in a very odd situation how did it all kick off well at this point I'd like to say that it all kicked off when I fell in love with my husband and he's really the <laughs> cause of all this 
<laughs> it's not uh, always the case. In many ways, he is because we originally came out here um, just to stay for six months because he wanted to see what life was like living in the north, uh, in Northern Ireland. And he loved it so much that he wanted to stay. And he often still gets asked, well, why would you move from Los Angeles to Belfast? Because it's yeah. freezing cold. And he'll tell <laughs> you that you, all you need is some long johns and a jacket and your grand. And the people and the place definitely make up for it. So he fell in love with Belfast and I fell in love with him. And we got married and started the process of getting his resonance card as the spouse of an Irish and an EU national. And we thought it would be relatively straightforward, although immigration is so complex that we went with a solicitor from day one so we wouldn't get anything wrong and, you know, dotted all the I's, crossed all the T's. And we expected it would take six months and everything would, would be grand. Yeah. Little did we know we were uncovering uh, quite, a, quite a big gap in legislation that um, really put us in a very difficult position where we had to make a decision as a family as to whether we would take an, an easier way that would be quite uncomfortable for us and difficult to do, or if we would give up our comfortable obscurity and step out into the public um, eye and take a case forward to try and right what we felt was wrong. Of course, we opted for the latter and took the case to the courts. When, when did this start? It started in 2015. Mm -hmm. So it's been the best part of five years. And um, we've actually been married for the same amount of time. We recently celebrated our fifth wedding anniversary and we were looking back at these photos and going, gosh, those people back then, they knew nothing about citizenship, immigration law, about, you know, any of the stuff mm -hmm. that we understand now. Um, we were so innocent and naive. <laughs> and back then, we actually thought initially in the beginnings that what we were dealing with was a clerical error because, of course, the case started when I applied for his residence card as a spouse of an Irish citizen. And the Home Office came back and said, well, you were born in Northern Ireland, so therefore you're a British citizen. And yeah. I, I was sitting with my solicitor at the time and going, well, that can't be right. I haven't ever taken out a British passport. I haven't opted to have British citizenship. And my very basic and cursory understanding of the Good Friday Agreement was that it gave us the great privilege of choosing to be Irish or British or both. And obviously I had made my decision and I was an Irish citizen. So that's where the origin of the case came from. Um, and that's when we decided to take it forward on the grounds of the Good Friday Agreement. But we thought that somebody over in London just didn't understand that Northern Ireland is unique in that regard and didn't understand the Good Friday Agreement. We didn't actually expect that it would become this mammoth undertaking in the case that it morphed into. We thought it would be resolved on the first appeal. It wasn't until maybe a year later that we realised we had uncovered something much bigger. And it seems like that's a very reasonable position for you to have had that, I mean, the Good Friday Agreement has been in place since 1998, you know, and that, you know, fast forward to five years ago, which... You know, it's a short span of time, but surely in that time, somebody had uncovered this before that you said you thought it was a clerical error. And that would be a really reasonable position to have, because surely if there was this big gap in legislation, it would have been spotted before then. That is a question I asked many times. Uh, <laughs> why did no one spot this before? I know from an immigration perspective, until 2012, 
the Home Office actually accepted these applications for EU residence cards. So the the issue there didn't actually start in 2012, and there were cases before ERS, but you know most people can't afford to go forward through the courts for a start. And they also, you know, these are young married couples that maybe have young children and choosing to take on a case like this, you know, is difficult. I remember speaking to one couple that had actually been in the courts for two years as well. And they just gave in and, you know, he renounced British citizenship because they just couldn't keep doing it. It was just so hard and they make it so hard so that people will do that. Um, I joke that, you know, we were not the first people to to encounter this issue or take a challenge on it. We were just the most stubborn. (laughs) But that undercover is a really interesting point, I think. And it's, I don't know, it's a little bit heartbreaking that that there seems to be or there had been an acknowledgement of people can't afford emotionally or financially to go through this because it's incredibly hard and we're just going to, if we stick it out, we don't have to, you know, these people will eventually buckle. And I think that's a wider problem in court systems generally, that they can be incredibly unwieldy for people and incredibly financially and emotionally burdensome for people to have to do this. And, and like you said, you, you had to be really stubborn, but it's kind of shit crack that you have to be, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And you are tapping into something that's very true because that's the power that government bodies do have is that they have endless resources, they have time, and they do use that against ordinary working people. You know, in our own case, the Home Office requested two separate adjournments to their own appeal against us that they knew would result in us being charged a full day of court fees and all the crack that comes with that. And that would add another mm. six months onto our lives to have to wait for the next one. So they do utilize their resources and ability to make it difficult in the hope that people will just take the easier way out. And what do they stand to gain from this? Uh, also a question I have asked, and I don't know if I really have an answer for you. I think mm. that um, in the beginning, this was just the Home Office doing what the Home Office does, which is deny everything and appeal against everything because the department is infamous really for not even adhering to its own policies. So when you're talking about the Home Office, I think that in the beginning, they were just doing what they always do. And as the case progressed, it was... Uh, a lack of understanding of Northern Ireland. And then it's, uh, you know, there is a degree of this idea that, you know, what's the problem? You should be grateful to be British. Being British is great. What's wrong Mm -hmm. with that? So I think there's a little bit of that in it too. And we're also dealing with a Conservative Party government. And I do think from my experience that there is a disconnect between the Conservative Party and the Good Friday Agreement. I think they see it as a Labour agreement that is done and dusted and they associate it with that party. Oh man, I'm so mad. (laughs) (laughs) And then the things got complicated after a certain referendum. Oh, they did. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yeah, I I suppose on one level, like we, and the Republic of Ireland was the first um, country to actually um, start undermining the Good Friday Agreement by a referendum. So maybe we can't point too many fingers. But um, the Brexit changed the, the, or changed the urgency and the, the nature of this, this of your case entirely. Absolutely, because what you're dealing, what you were dealing with here is 
connected to EU rights and entitlements because this right mm. that we were trying to access is the EU right to family reunification. Mm. And there was a lot of concern when the Brexit referendum and, and it came to pass that the UK would be leaving that uh, Northern Ireland citizens were going to lose their EU rights and entitlements. And Ur case was an example of them already losing those rights and entitlements before the referendum result had really been enacted. So it raised a lot of concern over, well, this is what's happening now, what's going to happen then? And of course, the concern around the Good Friday Agreement um, in terms of maintaining an open border. And, the, you know, we had the, the Prime Minister continuously reaffirming that the government was wholly committed to the Good Friday Agreement. And yet we were here in court listening to, you know, a government department say that, you know, the Good Friday Agreement is only aspirational and that a treaty Her Majesty's government is a party of has no bearing on the laws of the United Kingdom. So we were really personally listening to all the rhetoric and then at the same time going to court and hearing statements to the contrary and really difficult to have to listen to that um, over the last couple of years. And it raises big concerns over whether or not we can really rely on the British government to adhere to the Good Friday Agreement. I mean, that's just astounding to hear that. I mean, it, I was thinking about it today when we were kind of organising this and, and how I've done some research on the, the linguistic aspects of, of the Good Friday Agreement. But when you look at it in isolation, I mean, it's it's if you had like no idea what it was and had no context for Northern Ireland, you, you, you might be underwhelmed by it because it is, it, the language is vague. But when you think about it in context, it completely shifts and it becomes this hugely monumentous doc document that was so hard won and so hard fought um, that to say that it was just, it's just aspirational. And yes, in a sense, that might be true, but there's still rights that flow from it. And as you said, you know, you had, are you, and you still did have at the time that you had applied a right to, you know, uh, uh, reunification of families through the EU and yet still the Home Office is, is trying to deny the, I suppose, the, the groundbreaking nature of the Good Friday Agreement. It's really astounding. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Because, I mean, the when you look at how momentous uh, it was to get the Good Friday Agreement across the line, and of course, we've been reflecting on that a lot recently with the passing of both mm. Seamus Mell and, and John Hume. And you look at what mm. it took to get it across the line and the vision that these peacemakers had for this region and for the whole island in terms of building a shared future and really to be seeing the Good Friday Agreement minimized in any shape or form is it's depressing because we should be building on it, not trying to take it down. Particularly the idea that like, I suppose that the, the UK position was that leaving the European Union would free them to enter all, all these kinds of treaties and agreements with other countries. Yeah, there was quite a bit of irony to that, this idea that they were arguing that uh, the courts of the United Kingdom can't force the British government to adhere to its responsibilities to an international treaty. But at the same time, oh, hey, come sign uh, an international treaty with us. You know, <laughs> yeah, that's phenomenal public. And when you, you must have, during this whole process, you, you must have had some really dark days when you felt like you were making, getting, getting nowhere and, and that... Yeah, those ones are very dark days for you both. It was difficult. I mean, the most difficult period of time was the first couple of years because they kept Jake's passport for that time. 
So he had no freedom right. of movement. He couldn't leave the country. Two of his great uncles passed away, and that was difficult not to go home to see them or to be at the funerals. But the most difficult thing was when his grandmother fell ill. And I was so worried uh, that he wasn't going to get home to see her. And of course, at this point, he had been here for two years and he hadn't been home during that time to see her at any point. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, I was calling every day at the U.S. consulate trying to find a way to fly him home on an emergency passport because the home office just point blank refused to give him his passport back, even though we had these extenuating circumstances. So tried everything I could to get his passport back. The U.S. consulate said they could fly him home in an emergency passport, but the home office would have to give him permission to come back into the country. Then I went to the home office and said, you can keep the passport, but we need to return back to the U.S. on this emergency passport. And they said, if you do that, your application and appeal will be voided and your husband will not be allowed back in. Oh, man. So it was that just cruel. Mm. Uh, uh, Jake's grandmother, Evelyn, passed away. We did not get home uh, to see her because of the home office refusing to let him leave and re-enter. And then we obviously went to the press about it, about what had happened in this particular instance. And within two days of a reporter calling uh, about this, the Home Office couriered his passport back to him with a letter of condolences for the passing of his grandmother. Oh my God, are you kidding me? Like, and, uh, yeah, it's a pretty, <sighs> pretty tough. So I think that was probably the darkest time for us. Um, but in many ways, it also made us more determined because once right. we had suffered that loss, we were absolutely determined that first off, they shouldn't get away with it. And secondly, that we didn't want any other family to have to go through what we went through. So it kind of gave us a steely resolve. Right. I think that's something actually that I wanted to ask you about, about how, I mean, that's obviously heartbreaking and people, I guess, when you consider your case, people maybe don't understand the human cost on that, like, and how difficult that must have been, but also how that must have felt like, yeah, this is your life and your husband's life, but also the decision here would have impact on other people in your situation too. Yeah, and there was a lot of, um, it felt that there was a good, a good bit of pressure behind us too, because we would speak to a lot of families in a similar position. Uh, once we came out to the public and we discussed our case, a lot of people came forward and said, well, I've been through this as well. I renounced British citizenship or often people just would leave. They often would move to Dublin uh, if they could afford the rent. Um, and people would come to us and they would say, well, I'm in the same situation. My solicitor says they're waiting to find out what happens with your case. So in many ways, it kept us motivated because we knew that her case was the furthest along and it was the case that could have a domino effect and help all the people coming behind us. So that was one of our motivators. Okay, um, so when when did you feel that I mean, you started making leeway in the courts? When did you feel that things were turning around and when, when did you feel that the Home Office ever start, looked like they were going to start backing down? Because it, it seems even when... <laughs> I think that's really only happened recently. But, you know, at the same time, uh, time has felt very strange uh, through the case. You know, it doesn't feel like it's been five years. At the same time, it feels like it's been a lifetime. Uh, I was looking back recently and I realized I, I hadn't done any public speaking events until only like 18 months ago or a little under two years ago. And now it's so normal for me to do these kinds of events that I, I can't believe it's only been that long that I've been doing TV or radio or that kind of stuff. So time has been a bit funny. 
um, through this whole process. But I would say we only felt like we were going to get some traction from the home office within the last year, maybe even <laughs> within the last nine months. I think it took um, it took a lot of political pressure to get them to budge and a lot of media pressure. I think they were our key um, our key elements to our case was actually the media and political pressure because mm -hmm. we had cross-party support in Northern Ireland. We had SDLP, Alliance, Sinn Féin and Mike Nesbitt, mm -hmm. Mike Nizone from the UUP standing by <laughs> us as well. Um, and then it took the Irish government um, also getting involved. Simon Coveney in particular uh, mm -hmm. was quite determined to see some sort of resolution and we met with Simon Coveney last December. With that, we had Julian Smith, who was the then Secretary of State for Northern Ireland. And I think that um, he also was determined to see a resolution in this case. Uh, when we actually did get a concession, Julian Smith did message me himself on Twitter to say congratulations, which I thought was very sweet. And it also showed that he realized and recognized that there was an issue here that needed to be resolved. So it started to move quickly since then it came uh you know a concession was alluded to in the new decade new approach agreement in january thanks to julian smith and simon coveney i think and all the parties in northern ireland putting pressure and i also uh, the i knew the british government was aware that i was in the u.s meeting american leaders and i think that probably made them feel a little bit uneasy and that, that how, how that must have been a very interesting experience to actually go over there and and what you initially started off as as you as you thinking fixing a clerical error and then a few years later you're there in, in America talking to American politicians at that level. Yeah, it was a bit of a pinch me moment, to be honest. I mean, I met Hillary Clinton. Um, I met uh, Richie Neal, who is the head of the Ways and Means Committee. And I had just watched all the West Wing before I went. So I was really <laughs> excited when I got to D.C. It was a great experience. And it's interesting in that sometimes we look at this as, is, is there a silver lining? Because before her case you know, my interests were baking and walking my dogs. And I had no interest in politics at all. I was completely disenfranchised, like so many in Northern Ireland. And um, through the case, I've discovered that I actually love uh, law and uh, citizenship issues and politics. And I find something that I feel very passionate about in the Good Friday Agreement and in ensuring rights. So through the case, I find a whole other avenue for my own personal interests. And I'm actually doing a degree on, in politics, philosophy and economics, much to the complete dismay of Jake, who was <laughs> devastated that I wanted to do a politics degree. But it's, 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 it's wonderful in a way. And sometimes you think, I think, I think there's a lot to be said for important issues shouldn't be left to politicians. And maybe people, yeah. maybe people who like, who are very interested in politics are like, um, managers who really like meetings you know and they shouldn't be put in charge of things but when actual i suppose a human being with basic cop on and, and, a, and a good gut sense of what's right and wrong and enough backbone to stand up for themselves kind of gets involved in these things you actually find makes makes wonderful progress and you've done so much work that people who people who don't even know it yet have benefited so much from your fight yeah um well yeah i think history tells us that often it is uh individuals and rights groups and civic society that tend to push through substantial change it shouldn't always be that way but historically it seems like it often is 
is the way forward. And I guess we were just one more couple in a long line of people that find something that they couldn't tolerate and took a stand on it. Yeah, that's that's really cool. I wonder if I could just ask you a little bit, because it's something that I find really interesting and it's it's probably there's a bit of a disconnect and and maybe some of the reason why you were getting this rhetoric from the home office and these attitudes from from the conservative government um and it's about identity and how it's such a tangible thing and it was such a major part and it is such a major part of the good friday agreement and in northern ireland it's in a sense it's very important um but it's every day but I, i think the interaction with it is so different from other people that maybe that's part of the reason why there was a disconnect in the understanding of what you were fighting for versus what was understood um, by those in in positions of power in the UK? Um, It's an interesting, it's definitely an interesting line to look at. Uh, We have fought against this disconnect and this um, attempt to create a distinction really between identity and citizenship. And, yeah. you know, identifying as one thing and being a citizen of or vice versa. And I think that that's been one of the most perplexing arguments that we've encountered it, from the Home Office and also from, from some within society where they say, well, the Good Friday Agreement gave you a right to identify on a personal level as Irish, not a right to be Irish. Is something that right. we've actually encountered quite often. And I find it quite perplexing because it's it's relying on this concept that an international peace treaty is giving us a right to feel a certain way uh, or the right to abstract thought when in reality it gives you a right to be accepted as Irish or British or both. But certainly from an outside perspective as well, there might be that disconnect and understanding how complex identity is in Northern Ireland because it cuts across Mm -hmm. religion, national identity, culture. It's really complicated and I think very few from outside will be able to understand how that operates on a day-to-day basis. But uh, you have a podcast maybe that might be tackling that, I hear. <laughs> oh, we're trying, yes, it? yes, yes. <laughs> we have uh, we have started a podcast, uh, Hollywood to Hollywood, uh, being, of course, because my husband is from Los Angeles. Um, so we thought we would try to get our teeth into some of the, the wider issues separate from our own case. Well, we absolutely can't wait to get you into that. And um, before we wrap up, I mean, who's going to play you in the TV movie? <laughs> oh, Jesus, I don't know. I can't imagine that ever being a, a possibility, but that would be some crack. Actually, fun hmm. fact, um, we do have a bit of a movie celebrity in the family and that Jake's uncle um, is Stephen E. D'Souza, who did Die was- Hard and Running Man and a whole lot of stuff. I was actually oh about to ask God. that because when I heard his name is D'Souza and he's from and he's from Hollywood or from Los Angeles, so that, that it's a big place. There's probably loads of D'Souzas. Are they are they the Sunset Boulevard D'Souzas or are they the Valley D'Souzas? I mean, D'Souza is a really common name. That's yeah, just amazing news. I mean, I kind of lost my mind when I first uh, met Uncle Stephen, but you know, of course, Jake being from Los Angeles and having family in the industry, totally normal for him, but totally abnormal for me coming from Derry. Yeah. I heard an interview with Stephen D'Souza once and he was talking about Die Hard being a Christmas film and he said that all the great Christmas films explain a financial concept like Trading Places explains insider trading and Mary Poppins explains the idea of a run of the banks and and It's a Wonderful Life has that run of the banks idea as well and and Die Hard explains Barry Bonds. That's an interesting one. We're not getting into whether Die Hard is a Christmas film. We're not doing it. I mean, it is still a point of contention even within our own family. (laughs) 
<laughs> Great stuff. That's, that's amazing uh, to hear. Uh, that's I, I do like a, I like a little bit of a, a celebrity juice in, in our podcast, uh, Irish and Citizenship and Identity. Emma, do you have a favorite Irish word? Favorite Irish word? Um, do you know my favorite word would probably just be falcha? Because whilst we often use it for welcome, you know, it also translates to joy, bliss and happiness. And I think we are welcoming people and that word rings true for me. Fantastic. Emma D'Souza, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. So until the next time, it's a slant for me. And a slant for me. Slant. <laughs> But wait, there's more. Derek had to go, but Emma and I continued the conversation, which you can hear after this break. My name is Stephanie Preisner and my podcast is called Basically with Stephanie Preisner. And I have guests on every week who explain things to me because they're experts and I'm not. We've had people like Pascal Donoghue, the Minister for Finance, explain what it's like to be the Minister for Finance. We've had on Taoiseach, Micheál Martin, explain what it's like to be Taoiseach. Luke O'Neill explained coronavirus. Uh, a nurse explaining what it's like to get coronavirus. And then loads of things that aren't related to coronavirus at all at all. Like politics and being a child actor. If you like finding out about things, listen to Basically with Stephanie Preisner. Okay, I don't know if he's gone, but um, yeah, if you could just maybe talk to us about, I'm just going to double check that this is still recording. I'm just going to record on this computer. Yeah, because uh, I was just thinking we got to the point where it was like something happened, but we never yeah, talked about what, what actually happened. <laughs> yeah, no, I still have time. So um, yeah, if you could maybe talk us through um, kind of what, what happened, like how, how this, this has come to a conclusion and what is the conclusion? Yeah, absolutely. So... The case now has con concluded, um, something that still feels surreal to say, because honestly, after this amount of time, we thought it was never going to end. Um, but we, in October last year, actually, I'll run through the process of the court because yeah. we had so many court dates and so many uh, decisions that to get to the conclusion, it's good to give a quick recap of what actually sure. happened. Yeah. So we went to court the first time and the first tier tribunal ruled in our favor. Judge Gillespie ruled that I was an Irish national only and I had only ever been such and that the people of Northern Ireland can choose their nationality as a birthright and therefore nationality cannot be imposed upon them at birth. So he ruled that I wasn't a British citizen and I was in fact just Irish. So that was a huge moment for us and we were delighted to get a decision that not only reaffirmed my own belief, but also reaffirmed the principles of the Good Friday Agreement. Now, the Home Office, after that decision, actually spent two years trying to appeal against that decision. They, the first appeal they lodged was denied on the grounds that the judge ruled there was no error in law made. The second appeal, they then deferred twice before finally going to the upper tribunal. And the upper tribunal ruled in favor of the Home Office. So. At this point, if you think of it like a football match, it was 1-1. Right. The upper tribunal actually made quite a shocking decision in that they ruled that the people of Northern Ireland are British, even if they identify as Irish, under the British Nationality Act 1981. This Nationality Act hasn't been amended since the Good Friday Agreement, so that was really the point of contention, the, the point of law that was creating the problem was this Nationality Act. Right. But they also ruled that the Good Friday Agreement 
wasn't a constitutional document. So that created some problems as well, because of course, the Good Friday Agreement is widely seen as a constitutional document for Northern Ireland. And there was lots of errors and, and parts of that judgment that sat very uneasily with ourselves. We launched an appeal against the Upper Tribunal decision, and that appeal was lodged with the Court of Appeal for Northern Ireland. The Court of Appeal for Northern Ireland was due to hear it in June of this year, but two weeks before the case was heard in the Court of Appeal, the Home Office made a significant concession. Okay, so at that point, um, and I think that this concession really benefited all parties. It benefited us because finally we got the change that we wanted to see. We got a, a change that will help families, that will impact people across Northern Ireland. And the Home Office got to concede without potentially having their decision in the upper tribunal overturned in the Court of Appeal. And of course, politically, it was just... It was just a hot potato that they didn't want to deal with anymore. Right, yeah. So the concession is that in domestic UK immigration law, a relevant person of Northern Ireland has been inserted. And when you put it like that, a relevant person of Northern Ireland, um, it does sound a bit weird. You know, what about all the people that don't fit under that definition? Are they irrelevant people of Northern Ireland? (laughs) I don't know if I really like that terminology. But it is the definition under the Good Friday Agreement, which is a relevant person of Northern Ireland is a person who is an Irish citizen or a British citizen or an Irish and British citizen who was born in Northern Ireland to a parent who is either Irish or British or settled. So that went into domestic UK immigration law and actually is the first time since the Good Friday Agreement that the definition of a relevant person of Northern Ireland has been placed into UK domestic law. Oh, wow. So not only did you kind of have your own outcome, but you actually made, you know, in a sense, implemented a part of the Good Friday Agreement into law. That's amazing. Yeah, that's, uh, it feels pretty special because we fought for so long on Mm. this birthright to be Irish or British or both. I can't tell you how many times I have said those (laughs) words repeatedly. And I really believe that, you know, this is a birthright that benefits everyone in Northern Ireland and it needed to be protected, not just for us now, but in the future. So to get that into UK law is incredible and it feels great. And I know from a legal perspective, it is something that can be built upon because now we have a legal precedent. It's an immigration law, but it can now be built further and we will continue to try and see if we can get changes to citizenship law. Exactly. And I think particularly when, you know, you you started this process before Brexit, but when you're looking down the line at the potential, had you not taken this case and say in, you know, 10 years time, a couple come along and they take the case, but it's, they no longer have the EU right. And I know, as you said, that, that they were kind of pretty, pretty vague about, about the entitlements you had under the European Union, but nevertheless, it came at such kind of, in a sense, the last best time that you could have had it. Um, so it was, you know, you've protected those, and your case has protected those rights in the future, hopefully. Yeah, hopefully. I mean, in the, in the here and now, it's already benefiting um, people in Northern Ireland in the sense that uh, all the people of Northern Ireland can now apply to the EU settlement scheme, which actually does give you access to the citizens' rights chapter of the withdrawal agreement. Sure. That includes those who only identify as British and hold a British passport. They're now considered EU citizens for immigration purposes, and they can mm-hmm. access these more favourable family 
Renew writes that until this change in May of this year, they weren't able to access those rights as EU citizens. So we have managed to get NI-born British citizens the status of EU citizens. It is temporary, but the nature of temporary is that it's something that you can try and get on a more permanent basis. Yeah, but that's fantastic as well, because I think that's something that maybe people might not have considered that, you know, there was this, this kind of when, when Brexit went through, there was this issue, what about the people from Northern Ireland? And whatever your identity in Northern Ireland is, the majority of people voted against Brexit and they were going to be, no matter who, whether you're British or Irish or both, you were still going to be insurmountably affected in the way that people in London weren't going to be affected. And so it was a different issue for you. So I'm kind of on the other side of the same coin, were people with British citizenship going to have to uptake Irish citizenship in order to adhere to, that was a discussion and it was happening, in order to to avail of, of European Union rights. Um, and to now take that aspect out of it is, is fantastic, even if it is temporary. Yeah, I mean, that's the concern. And I think that... Uh post-June 2021, we could be looking at that being a possibility for people again. Mm. And I think that we need to have those wider conversations because, you know, I fought against the idea that I should have to adopt or renounce a citizenship in order to access rights. Brexit can have the effect on NI-born British citizens where they're put into a position where they have to obtain Irish citizenship in order to access rights. And that, for me, still strikes against the core of equality and parity of esteem and the Good Friday Agreement. So it's about finding a way where everyone's rights are equal and upheld. And that's kind of become my my motto that I live by, uh, it seems, over the last few years. Yeah, that's so wonderful to hear, though, that it's, you know, it's, I always find that having been involved in activist movements myself, like, you kind of get thrust into these things that you never intended to get involved in. And then suddenly you find your calling and those are the best people. So it's really exciting to hear you talk. So, and I love law as well. So I'm really excited to hear you say that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. There's just something so exciting about a 560 page legislative document. It just makes me so excited. And I I know know that's normal. (laughs) (laughs) No, it is for a certain cohort of people. Yeah. But uh, yeah, Yeah. (laughs) I get it. I I remember uh, when we went to, we went to the upper tribunal and my solicitor had brought with me you know, my own file of all the skeleton arguments <laughs> and every piece of document they were going to be using so I could sit at the back and go through everything as well with the lawyers. And it was just like Christmas for me. <laughs> mm, legal document Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> so it's great, great to hear that you relate. You relate to my yes. love of legalese. I do, yeah. Hi guys, it's Geraldine. We just want to let you know that since recording, we became aware of a GoFundMe set up by Emma and Jake. Emma and Jake were left with a really massive legal bill after taking on the British government and securing citizenship rights for the people of Northern Ireland. If you're interested to donate, please visit their GoFundMe. It's called D'Souza Case and We Are Irish 2 Campaign for the GFA. Or you can visit their website www.weareirish2.com for more information and links to donate. Thanks so much, guys. Hey, Dara, back again. Thank you so much to Garajin for taking over there. And thank you so much to Emma D'Souza for joining us and being so generous with her time and her wisdom. Motherfucker comes out every Friday in the Headstuff Podcast Network. Thanks to Brian for producing. Thanks to Kirsten Shield for doing our art. If you like Kirsten's art, you can get a discount on it as a Patreon supporter. 
All you got to do is sign up. We're at patreon.com forward slash Derek. You can contact the show at motherfuckerheadstuff.org or you can get me at Twitter. I'm at the Irish Four. Until the next time, slung fall. This has been a production of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Oh, Jesus, wept about time. I tell you, I am cursed when it comes to technology.